0: For the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org.
2: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, the show about news and ideas from the shell hartman Institute. My name is Yudah Kurtzer. I'm president of Shell hartman Institute in North America. We're recording on Thursday morning, October 1st, 2020. We are in the midst of uh, what we might call American political mayhem, Earlier, last week after the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, the president named Amy Coney Barrett to be his replacement on the Supreme Court. In the midst of the partisan political fervor around that nomination, the questions of its supposed legitimacy or illegitimacy, which we're probably not going to talk about today, the first presidential debate took place and much of the American Jewish conversation has shifted. It's an unbelievably important moment for American Jewish political life, and I'm really excited to have two friends and colleagues who will help us unpack a little bit of how we should be thinking as American Jews in this moment about the relationship between Jews and non-Jews. Zev Elif is an American Jewish historian. He's the chief academic officer at Hebrew Theological College and associate professor of Jewish history for the Turo system, and he's the author of a recently released book called Authentically Orthodox, a Tradition-Bound Faith, in American life. And Malka Simkovich is a scholar of ancient Judaism, the Crown Ryan chair of Jewish studies and the director of the Catholic Jewish studies program at Catholic Theological Union. So first of all, Zev and Malka, thank you both for uh, for coming on today. Zev, let's start with you. So um, I wanna go back to this kind of Catholic Jewish moment. One of the weirdest things about the contemporary moment in American political life is that, I think this is unprecedented in American history, but we're, we're basically on the verge of six Catholic Supreme Court justices, two Jews, and one former Catholic who's turned Episcopalian, which is Gorsuch. It certainly was not the case 30, 40 years ago that Catholics and Jews dominated the Supreme Court. If anything, at an earlier in American history, you would have described Catholics and Jews both on the outside of the story. So first of all, help us get up to speed on how it happens that Catholics and Jews inhabit this unique position of American political power. By the way, Biden too is a Catholic. Help us understand a little bit what happened to bring America to this moment where Catholics and Jews inhabit this unique place.
1: So the first Catholic to the Supreme Court was Roger Taney in the 1850s, who wasn't elected because of his religion. Back then, Supreme Court justices were really elected to achieve geographical balance. The first Jew, of course, was Lee Brandeis, and with Frankfurter, right after, uh, he created the so-called Jewish seats. We didn't really think about uh, Supreme Court seats in religious terms, usually it was geographical. The erosion, so to speak, of the Protestant majority, and it still is historically, the overwhelming majority of Supreme Court justices have been Protestant. But the fact that we don't have any, any longer, really begins with Ronald Reagan. Reagan appointed two Catholics, Bush, uh, his successor, appointed another Catholic, and Bill Clinton and George W. Bush and Barack Obama also selected Jews and Catholics. And so you really begin in the 1980s to see Jews replacing Jews for the most part. We talk a little bit about when Jews were replaced in the Supreme Court by others, but it's really the 1980s in which we see Catholics emerging as a major block on the Supreme Court. And I suspect that has a lot to do with a certain distrust of, well, two things. I would say, number one, a distrust of uh, evangelical Protestants. Uh, in reading law and separating law and faith, law and religion, but also one can't dismiss Roe v. Waite and how it was the sweet spot to a certain extent of selecting a conservative justice was Catholic. Because Catholics read the law with a lack of bias towards their faith, but at the same time, generally read the law with a conservative bent, with a conservative lens. The Jewish seat has always been essentially retained, although uh, one curiosity is that when Nixon decided to replace, uh, I believe in 1970, Abe Fortas with uh, Justice uh, Blackman, it was his speechwriter at the time, Pat Buchanan, who said, you eh, don't need to replace a Jew with another Jew. And of course, it was Buchanan much later on uh, who was very upset about Jewish justice replacing Jewish justices uh, in the last 10, 15, 20 years.
2: Right so and in, in this particular moment It's quite telling that basically what could have been a third Jewish justice on the court in the appointment of Garland winds up with potentially a sixth Catholic justice. One of the things I do want to come back to is the question of who are the proper Christians to represent the conservative political positions that the Republican Party is connected to? And I want to unpack that relative to Jews, but let me bring Maka into your work in many ways, even as an ancient historian, has now brought you into dialogue enormously between Jews and Christians, and especially being on a Catholic campus uh, between Jews and Catholics. So I'd love for you to give us just a kind of a state of the moment of the Jewish-Catholic conversation in America, which also has undergone pretty significant revision over the last few decades. So maybe give us a little bit of background on where the Jewish-Catholic conversation was and where it is now, and then we can probably bridge that to the present, to this weird Supreme Court moment.
3: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Well, we've seen in the past 20 years a real transformation in terms of Jewish-Catholic dialogue. But I have to take you back to 1965 with the Second Vatican Council, which culminated in this 1965 statement uh, known as Nostra Aetate, translates into this phrase in our time. It's the first few words of this paragraph. It's a little, little paragraph, but it's enormously transformative because this paragraph in 1965 represents a total shift in the position of the church towards Jews, basically retracting the accusation of deicide and arguing for a living covenant, a sort of dual covenant theology, suggesting that the covenant between God and the Jews has not been broken. And Catholics do something that Jews also do, which is when they revolutionize from the inside, they claim that it's actually always been this way. So in fact, we've been misinterpreting our theology for 2000 years and the covenant was never broken. And some Catholics went so far as to say, and by the way, we've always been saying this. And if you you didn't get our drift, then you've just been misunderstanding. What's interesting is that specifically the American Catholic bishops were really responsible for Nostra Aetate, it was very controversial. It took years to get approved. There were all kinds of questions about how this would destabilize relations with Arab countries, with the Middle East. This is a very tenuous time. There were uh, bishops in South America who had theological problems with it. Bishops in Africa who said, why are we even talking about the Jews? Bishops in the Middle East saying, this is dangerous for us. There are all kinds of things going on. In broad strokes, American Catholic bishops were really instrumental in making sure that the statement passed. The complexity here is that you can have a statement at the top. Unlike Judaism, it's it's not decentralized, it's a very centralized religion. But a statement at the top does not necessarily trickle down to, uh, you know, on the ground life and on the ground living. And so while Nostra Aetate, in terms of the relationship, between the bishops uh, and the, you know, major leaders in America, it was transformative. Even in the late '60s and '70s, with the RCA, the OU, even Orthodox rabbis speaking regularly to church leaders. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the average Catholic in America has any idea of what Nostra is. And I would add a further layer of complexity. Uh, by noting that there's an incredible demographic shift right now in the American Catholic community in terms of a rise in uh, leaders who are minorities, people of color, Catholicism is no longer white. In 20 years, it certainly won't be. I don't think majority white. That's really going to be a major question. As we see a demographic change, are we going to see a development, and I don't know, positive or negative, but will we see a development in the relationship between the American Catholic community and the Jews um, of America?
2: So let me tease out something that I think was baked into a little bit of what you were describing there, Malka, which is, you know, when you make reference to the conservative Catholic reading of the law, it does sound a little bit probably not coincidentally like orthodox interpretation of Jewish law a kind of conviction to unpacking original intent thinking with similar types of approaches towards how do you excavate the true meaning of the law as a result there does seem to be a kind of uh, we might imagine as a natural affinity between Orthodox Jews who also apropos Zev, your comments about the extent to which Roe and other sexual and identity politics in America shift and become kind of fodder for the Republican Party to kind of claim a certain conservative terrain. I wanna talk with both of you about how you see Orthodox Jewish behavior in this moment, because that seems to be like the most obvious place of alignment, quote unquote, between Jews and Catholics is actually between conservative Catholics with the same type of orientation and, and Orthodox Jews who are thinking with similar behaviors about law and tradition, and also about the political manifestation of that.
3: In the past 10 years, I've seen a very interesting phenomenon where inter-religious dialogue, particularly between Orthodox rabbis and the Catholic world, is not only suddenly kosher, but almost encouraged. I mean, we, we've we seen a series of statements between Jerusalem and Rome, uh, which I think was put out by the Orthodox Union to do the will of our Father in Heaven. Uh, both of these were uh, constructed as sort of memorial documents in the wake of the 50th anniversary of Nostra they uh, presented to Pope Francis and authored by rabbis. I think to do the will of our Father in Heaven was authored by European rabbis and passed on to the RCA or American rabbis. But the point is, is that suddenly interreligious dialogue, particularly with the church, is happening. But I, I think that the new thing that we have to contend with is that it seems to me to have political, not simply theological motivations, which I think is new.
1: But they, they have a similar ethic and it is safer because everything you said about the 1960s, Malika, it is safer for there to be interfaith dialogue between Jews and Catholics because at one point, Six out of every 10 Jews feared that evangelicals, who again are on the Christian right, had anti-Semitic leanings. Because of the 1960s and Second Vatican, we are less suspect, our Jews, of Catholics of embedding within them a certain type of anti-Semitic trope or behavior. So if there is going to be interfaith dialogue because of certain shared ethics, it might as well be Catholics.
3: I think that there is a dialogue, The dialogue between Jews and Catholics dependent not on shared ethics, but on the trust that you build based on the confidence of articulating difference. Meaning when I sit down with a Catholic, they'll say, here is exactly where I disagree with you, Malka. And let's talk about it. There's sort of a trust, and I think that that trust has been built over the past 50 years, starting with Nostra Thetate, But I am very comfortable sitting down with a Catholic and talking about, and the differences are less threatening than clean similarities. And I'll give you a specific example, the land of Israel. Because most of my Catholic friends have profound trouble understanding the occupation, understanding how somebody could be a proud Zionist. I mean, this is complicated, and I I don't want to distill it with generalizations. But when I sit down with an evangelical who says, I love the state of Israel, I can't build a conversation on that. Because then I don't feel, for whatever complicated reason, I don't feel the trust. But in a way, when a Catholic articulates those differences to me, it actually galvanizes dialogue that I think is very substantive.
2: Where I want to push is, my suspicion is has been that interfaith dialogue has always been driven by either overt or covert political motivations, even when it takes place exclusively within a theological idiom. So it doesn't surprise me that the evangelical attachment to Israel may be a little bit strange because it's pushing beyond your own comfort zone in, in one way or another. There does seem to be kind of coded ways in which interfaith dialogue oftentimes assumes a kind of political affinity and is therefore building on that foundation in order to establish something more significant. And it becomes a lot easier if there's a values piece to it. I just don't know how much you can ever really detach a real conversation about theology from, from politics, especially in our hyper-partisan, hyper-political culture.
1: I think you're right. I think when it comes to uh, affirmative action, prayer in, in public schools, and the fact that in, since 1980s, the Orthodox community has developed very particular, actually late in the game, among other uh, Jewish movements, conservative and reform, to develop political machinery, but separate from the established, from the NACRAC sort of community. Those um, partnerships um, that have to in some way inform dialogue, but they were on the same side on all these issues. Church, state, establishment clause, affirmative action, Catholics and Orthodox Jews in particular fought hand in hand.
3: Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that at all. I, I do agree that interreligious dialogue is always in some way political and politically motivated. I guess my question is, and I don't have an answer to it can American Catholicism be characterized as conservative? If you look at the 2016 voting, weren't they split down the middle? Even now, the Supreme Court is a conservative court, but there is a Catholic woman who is a liberal. Um, And I'm coming from a context of progressive American Catholicism. So I guess my question is, you know, I understand that American rabbis motivated to engage in dialogue with Catholics are motivated to engage with a certain kind of a Catholic. But that doesn't mean, at least uh, in my view, that American Catholicism is moving towards uh, a conservative future, especially because of these demographic changes.
2: The thing that I'm nervous about, which is a little bit different than that, is... Just the optics, you're right, Sotomayor is Catholic and and on the left-hand side of the political spectrum, unlike basically the rest of the Catholics on the court. What I guess I'm nervous about is the Jews on the court represent a certain type of American Judaism, and therefore it inclines towards a certain type of political alliance that left-leaning politically and maybe even religiously progressive American Jews might create with their kin Christians, who they might be able to talk to. And the opposite story is taking place on the other side of the political aisle, where it's Orthodox Jews potentially with evangelicals, where there's some work being done with evangelicals when when you can root the conversation around Israel, and a whole bunch of work with Catholics when the conversation can be routed around domestic political concerns. And I worry, both from a peoplehood standpoint, are we as Jews then really engaged in any sort of serious way with interfaith dialogue when we're basically split on this line? And I'm worried about the kind of koshering process of which which Jews are considered to be good Jews by our significant others, and that that just causes me tremendous uh, consternation and fear. I guess I'm curious how both of you see that. Is that diagnostic correct? And what do you think we should be doing as communities and community leaders in trying to to kind of rectify that?
3: Uh, I mean, there's so many ways to tackle this question. I do think that you're right to be concerned and to have these questions. I think it is very complicated. Like I said, I work for an institution that is definitely a a pro-Francis, progressive Catholic institution, and and also we're 50% an international School. school. I don't think my position exists necessarily more conservative. I mean, I know of more conservative Catholic institutions that do not have a position, a chair in Jewish studies, that is occupied by a Jew. I think that that can only happen in an academic space that is progressive. You can also make a distinction between what's happening in the academic spaces for Catholics and clerical spaces. I think the clerical spaces are more conservative and reaching out to more conservative Jews. But I want to just bring in another angle to this, as a woman... Because uh, interreligious dialogue has a gender problem, very, very big gender problem. Um, and if you look at various reports from the past 10 years, various meetings between uh, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops and various synagogue councils, and it doesn't matter whether these councils are the National Council of Synagogues, which doesn't have Orthodox rabbis as far as I know, or the RCA, it doesn't matter. Across the board, the list of rabbinic interlocutors are male. I think that there's a Catholic bias towards male rabbis. There are women rabbis, and I don't want to lay all the blame on the Catholic side, but I have been in situations where there's an expectation of, of interreligious dialogue with male rabbis. I think that we have a problem on both sides.
2: I think there might be something else here. American Orthodoxy has been basically for about 20 to 30 years, post the 1990 Jewish population study, certainly post Pew, been positioning itself As this is your terminology uh, around authenticity, Zev, as positioning itself as the authentic representatives of American Judaism, and doing so in ways that are triumphalist relative to what they perceive as the demise of the liberal denominations, which is not a peoplehood move, by the way. If you think that other Jews are suffering, the way to do it is not to position yourself, it's to actually figure out how do you bring them along with you, but positioning themselves in contradistinction to the liberal denominations. And a big part of it is emerging as not accidentally, but very intentionally, in American political and institutional life. One of the craziest things to watch is what happened at APAC, right? Where APAC became basically a modern Orthodox institution. And so, it's not just who are Catholics looking to and what do they consider to be authentic. It's how does American Orthodoxy push itself forward as being the authentic Judaism of America and then brings all of its gender-based baggage and other theological baggage into that room as well. How do you respond to that? I mean, because both of you are are sitting both as historians, as people in interfaith spaces, and also identifiably as Orthodox. Does it code with either your expertise of experience or your your personal experience of this?
1: I think triumphalism is the right word. I remember years ago, Rabbi Norman Lamb talked about reciting Kaddish for the conservative movement. There absolutely is a triumphalist attitude, which is the demise of peoplehood.
3: What you're saying that Orthodox Jews do to other Jewish denominations is precisely what the Catholic Church does to the Protestants. And so the Catholics who embrace the tension between modernity and tradition see the Orthodox Jews through their lens of experience. So it's not just that the Orthodox Jews are saying, pick me, pick me. I want to be the one to talk to you and represent my tradition as I view it to be authentic, but that Catholic leaders are saying, who among the Jews are the most appropriate in terms of dialogue partners? Well, let's go to the Orthodox Jews because they are also walking this tightrope of modernity and tradition that we walk, as opposed to those Protestants who you know, have been astray for the past 500 years. I think I got my job for two reasons. What is my gender and what is my denomination? I think that um, I, I can't tell you how many comments I've gotten from Catholic friends that they identify with Orthodox Jews, that they are the Orthodox Jews of the church.
1: I remember having a conversation in the last uh, few months with a Catholic colleague and complaining that everybody in his school talks about social justice. You know, it harks back to when there were certain people complaining in Wexner comments. Everybody's talking about tikkun olam that's what it has shades of it's a reminder that we're not so generous right we have a- in each community, we deal with similar comparative issues one way or the other. So to return that term, authenticity and cultural cues, informing and mediating how we make decisions.
2: Right. And I found this, by the way, in interfaith encounters with American Muslims as well. Because you know, if you're an American Muslim who wants to reach out to the Jewish community, that you can find kinship and fellowship really easily among liberal Jews, especially on issues that relate to Israel and or other political issues in America. But if you want to actually break through to people who you see as like, the Jews who actually like pray three times a day, um, then you're gonna have to talk to Orthodox Jews. And if you're paying attention and you notice that if your goal is actually moving your agenda into the Jewish community, it's not hard to miss the ascendancy of the Orthodox community in in the hallways of Jewish power. It's not invisible and it's not accidental. So it's not surprising that our significant others uh, in different religious communities notice these trends in our communities as well.
1: I remember a moment uh, also in the last year in which there was a working group between Jewish and Muslim scholars, and one Muslim said, I guess I'm a modern Orthodox Muslim. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden there was a kinship, it resonated, terminologies, monikers, that could be shared.
0: Hi, I'm Claire Supran, and if you're listening to Identity Crisis, you're probably curious about the major ideas and debates of the day affecting Jews in America, so I have great news for you. I'm the co-editor with Yehuda Kurtzer of The New Jewish Canon, a book that's out this summer. You can find out more about it at newjewishcanon.com. In this book, we've gathered all Jewish ideas that were expressed between 1980 and 2015. Well, maybe not quite everything, but it contains major texts and debates that were vitally important to the American Jewish community, along with a series of reflective essays by today's thinkers that explain the debates and their importance. Read about it and how to buy it at newjewishcanon.com.
2: So I'm personally troubled by this, um, by this triumphalism piece. What would you want to see the Orthodox community do? Even before we start talking about interfaith dialogue and reaching across the aisle, what would you want to see the Orthodox community do and what posture would you want to see the Orthodox community modeling as it's growing in its numbers, in its political power in America to mend that rift that's, that is increasingly emerging both on political lines and other ideological lines between Orthodox Jews and other American Jews?
3: I think that we could absolutely use more intra-Jewish dialogue, especially because as individual denominations, we're reaching out and doing so much inter-religious dialogue, but we're not doing much intra-religious dialogue. And many of those Orthodox leaders who are so motivated to talk to the Catholic Church are actually not trained in dialogue or don't do it very well in their own communities. And I actually see this a lot on social media. Some members of the Orthodox community specifically real advocates for reaching out to other religions do not engage, I would say, productively in discourse with Jews of other denominations. So I I do think that we need to, to practice that. I think we have to move beyond defining ourselves according to ritual. I always tell my students I prefer the term observant over orthodox because it allows for more fluidity and it brings in all Jews who identify actively with Jewish life in the modern age. So I try to think about my vocabulary and how I speak about these varying individuals within these denominations.
1: I think triumphalism is a major problem, frankly. I think it beats complacency. And not just that, it blocks any path forward. You know, we talk often in Beit Midrash circles about Iridata ha'dorot*, and we privilege the ancient sources above more contemporary. But you know, if you look right now, there's less creativity going on. A lot of rehashing and rehearsing, but a lot less creativity perhaps than the 50s, 60s, and 70s. When Orthodox Judaism and its leaders, they had something to prove. They had uh, almost to evangelize to a certain extent, but to do that, you have to peddle your wares and they ought to be good wares. When you're complacent and when you think that you're just growing and everybody's shrinking and you're reciting Kaddish for everybody else, you're not getting any better.
2: Yeah, our colleague, Dr. Rifka Press Schwartz, has a good line on this where she says the novelty of American orthodoxy in the middle of the 20th century grappling with the with kierkegaard and using kierkegaard in understanding the binding of isaac represents the religious and hermeneutical dynamism of really engaging with what's the best of of western philosophy as we confront our own tradition but if the only western philosophy you're still reading in 2020 is Kierkegaard, you're kind of missing the point <laughs> it doesn't have the same type of dynamism last last question um i, I think the primary political conversation per, this is my personal comment Disclaimer, prime, personal comment. The primary conversation about the Coney Barrett nomination should be about the fundamental legitimacy of the nomination 30 days before the election. But um, there is a smaller corollary conversation, which is a conversation about um, Catholicism and her practice of Catholicism. Any guidance that you'd like to offer for how you think the Jewish community should navigate that conversation, um, would love to have it.
3: I do hear observant Jews saying, I see myself in Amy Coney Barrett. I don't know that that translates to, you know, typical American Catholics saying the same thing. Because again, I think that American Catholicism is at a crossroads right now. I don't think that there's a cohesive Catholic approach. There's a demographic split, there's a political split that's right down the middle. There's an age split where the older generation of Catholics tend to be more involved in church activities, more involved, this is broad strokes, but traditional approach to their Catholic observance. The younger Catholics are more disenfranchised, tend to be more liberal. There's of course, ethnic differences. So there's so many precipices on which the Catholic Church is standing right now in America. So I don't know that the average Catholic will say, oh, Amy Coney Bear, I see myself in this figure. Whereas, interestingly, that is what I hear from my Orthodox friends, and I think we're creating this two-dimensional figure of someone who's pleasing to us on the other side through which we understand ourselves.
2: Beautiful. Well, thank you so much to my wonderful guest this week and for this wide-ranging, deep, and uh, in many ways personal conversation. Uh, so thank you to Zev Aleph and Malka Simkovich for being here. Thanks to all of you for listening to our show. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced this week by David Sv. and edited by Alex Dillon. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman with music provided by So Called. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover the show, or you can write to us at identitycrisisatchellampartment.org. So you can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week, and thanks for listening.